Hello and welcome to Politics on Draft with me, Kartik Sawney. James is unfortunately not with us today. Um, don't worry, he's not dead. Uh, he's just a bit busy today, so it's just going to be me. But I have some company with me. I have Kat Demchak. Kat, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Kat Demchak. Uh, today I'll be instead of James and um, we'll be discussing some interesting stuff with the Kartik. Yes, so Kat is going to be here specifically for one topic at the end that I'm going to give a lot of attention to because it's arguably the largest topic in the world at the moment. Uh, not arguably, it probably is the largest topic in the world right now. Um, but she will also jump in on certain issues that I'm discussing if I'm massively off. Um, so if you are usually here just for James's voice, now is the time to leave. If you are here to listen to me ramble about politics uh, of the last week and a half, then please feel free to stay. So we'll get right into it. So the Conservative Party. On Monday, the government finally decided that elements of their mini budget was deplorable and they decided to reverse the reduction in the top rate of tax, commonly known as the 45p tax rate. Now, I'm just going to go off brief here because I don't think they decided that elements of their mini budget was deplorable. I think they decided that it wasn't going to get through Parliament. I think they still want it quite badly. But anyway, the government has largely lost any sense of trust, which it never had in the first place. What I want to briefly start on is that just because this government has conducted a U-turn, doesn't mean that suddenly they're going to be a conscientious government. And I'm not saying that that's what people think, and I'm, I'm just saying it for the sake of saying it. This is still a government in the absolute fringes of British political society being brought into mainstream politics. These are the people who, if you were at a Conservative Party conference seven years ago, you would actively avoid. Now they are your government. Suella Braveman yesterday, we're recording this on a Wednesday to go out on Friday, literally stated that she dreams of deportations to Rwanda. The idea that you can dream to treat people fleeing from war-torn countries with such contempt and disgust is something that even the Conservative Party of seven years ago would be shocked by. But anyway, this is the government we elected, but it isn't. It's the government that a selective you voted for. But there is some glimmer of hope as we move on to last week's polls. Um, which I'm sure Kat saw. Uh, if Kat, if you have any reflections, feel free to jump in. Um, but YouGov gave Labour a 33-point lead. Servation gave Labour a 21-point lead. Delta Poll, Mirror Poll, which is Labour Party's closest polling company, um, gave them a 19-point lead, which is still a significant lead, but a conservative figure uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um Looking at YouGov data, Labour would gain 296 seats to have a majority of 346, with Conservatives losing 304 seats, leaving them with 61 seats. As the pound has gone down, Labour's polling in Keir Starmer's favourability has shot up. Kat, I was just about to call you James. Kat, <laughs> what do you think about the polls and what do you think about um, Suella Braverman's statement today? I don't know if you heard it. Well, yes, I, I've heard about the pound going down. That was really shocking, to be fair. But it's not surprising that the um, Labour is lead, like the predictions for Labour being leading since that has happened. Because I think a lot of people are losing uh, uh, trust in the Conservative Party being in, being in the government right now. But at the end of the day, it's just predictions we never know. Um, back in 2019, we thought that Labour is going to be elected, but from what we saw, the Boris Johnson was elected and with a with an amazing lead. And I think that just shows that we never know what people are going to go for. And I uh, wanted to looking, ask you yeah. a question. Sorry if I'm interrupting you. I wanted to ask you a question, um, and I think it's also relevant to to the discussion that we're going to have later. But yeah. to what extent can people trust a government that was elected by? a very, very small portion of a political society. That's the thing. I think um, that's that's what makes um, it hard when most people don't trust the government because I think um, since it's such a small portion, how can you lead the people when the people are not believing in the leader? So that's what makes it so tricky. 
Yeah, no, Nadine Dorries, who was uh, the Secretary of State for D the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, also a uh, cabinet member under Boris Johnson government, um, was would agree with you um, that we don't that the we I say we I'm sort of paraphrasing from her tweet that the Liz Truss government doesn't have a mandate to do this, and it's shocking that a Conservative minister that isn't too far politically from Liz Truss is stating that. But going back onto the polls from a Labour Party perspective, me being very, very left wing, um, these polls are terrific, especially during conference season and right after Liz Truss has become prime minister. She's supposed to get a little boost in normal everyday time, something that um, people call a honeymoon period. But this is no longer normal everyday times. This is the normal everyday times of now. Polls do not necessarily reflect what the election result is going to be. So we, nor the Labour Party, should sit comfortable with these results. However, I went canvassing in my local area on Saturday morning, and I'm hearing positive things on the doorstep. Um, the thing that needs to be outlined is that I live in a very conservative area. Uh, I live in Bromley and Chislehurst. Our MP is Bob Neal. Bob, if you're listening to this, hi, I don't really like you. Um, so a couple of years ago, you could put a blue ribbon on a donkey and it would come up conservative. However, on the doorstep, I heard a lot of I don't know from the uh, voters who we previously had down as against us and for the conservative government. And I heard a lot of people worried about how they are going to be able to pay their mortgages and that they would be voting for their local Labour candidate. I also heard a lot of people pleased with the idea of a national energy company, which is called Great British Energy, which we'll come on to later. And they were more excited when I explained the concept of it further. Another interesting anecdote was that I spoke to two Green Party voting houses and they said that they wanted to get the Tories out so that they would be voting tactically, whilst also holding Keir Starmer to his pledge of clean energy by 2030. So the tides are definitely turning. Is it turning to the level that we can justify a 33-point lead? I'm not so sure. Um, I think the Labour Party definitely has a lot of work to do and it cannot and should not get complacent as there is a long time till the next general election. And we need to turn those don't knows into yes, we will wait for you. Um, I also want to briefly cover um, what happened on, in the Labour Party conference. I know we, uh, James and I discussed it last week. I wanted to very briefly, before we go on to our main topic, um, discuss what came out of it. So there was a commitment to proportional representation. There was a commitment to zero carbon energy by 2030. Ambitious, but he actually outlined how we would go about it. Uh, Renationalising the railways using new tech, a fresher public structure to the administration of the railways that actually seems quite achievable. Uh, but the big one was Great British Energy, which was which is not nationalising all energy companies. It's a publicly owned company within the first year of Labour government that they would set up. Um, so, yeah, look into that, read more about that. It could be very, very interesting now i want to come on to our main topic but before we do that we'll go to a break so welcome back to politics on drafts um so now we have cat demchak uh we're going to cover the big topic so as you all know since february vladimir putin has perpetrated an egregious war in ukraine this has been a bloody war and frankly the images that we have seen over the last couple of months are tough to look at I'm warning our listeners that the next couple of minutes will be a tough listen. So if you want, please feel free to tune out now. With us, we have a fellow student from QMUL. She is from Ukraine and she can offer much more authenticity on this topic than I could ever offer. So, Kat, how are you? And tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi. Hello again. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Kat, just like Kartik said. I am from Kiev, from Ukraine. I'm uh, currently a student at Queen Mary and I'm doing international relations, which is a very interesting topic to be studying at the moment, being Ukrainian, since that's the only thing people are talking about or one of the biggest things people are talking about. And I'm happy to have this opportunity to talk, talk about some issues concerning the war in Ukraine, as I feel like it has affected me quite personally. And I think I can give you a sort of different perspective. 
Um, also, I think, especially growing up in Ukraine, I understand what Ukrainians feel about this political issue, mostly as I have many connections, like family and friends back there. And I've had lots of conversation with conversations with them. I think for the past seven months, that's the only conversation we've been having. And I understand the perspective on things as someone who's experienced war and seen in front of their eyes. As horrible as yeah. that sounds. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something briefly there that isn't on the briefing that I want to pick up. Um, you said you know about sort of the Ukrainian reaction to this mm -hmm. and you know the Ukrainian understanding. Is there a fundamental difference of opinion or is there a difference in understanding between the Ukrainian youth and those who are older in Ukrainian society? Now, I know that most people will feel quite in, in a very uniform way about this war. Uh, but this is a youth-led podcast, so I thought it would be a good idea to ask you that question. Oh, yeah. I think, um, like you said, it is quite a, like a uniform uh, opinion because in a war, if someone attacks you, automatically that's someone you should be hating. And I think that's kind of the case here as well. I think it's quite unanimous that people don't like Russia I think uh, and it's it, it makes sense why they've seen such uh, horrendous stuff they've had to leave their homes they've had to leave their lives basically and move to a different country which is from like I because since I've done that before being from an immigrant family I know how that is and especially yeah. when you're running away from the war that's a completely different level so um, talking about how people's uh, opinions uh, people's views on this i think the only thing that people are divided about right now is probably the language uh since the western parts of ukraine are more um focused on ukrainian languages and eastern are more russified since they're on the border of russia um the only the biggest fight right now within the ukrainian community is the language issue since uh some people um, don't want to switch from Russian to Ukrainian and other people ask them why not do you not see the horrendous stuff that Russia has done why is it so hard for you to switch and um, I think out of everything that would probably the be, be the biggest um, division within the Ukrainian community um, other than that the opinions on the, whether the land should belong to us or to Russia I can confidently say that 90% would say that all the annexed regions at the moment belong to Ukraine. Uh, mm. That's including Crimea. And I think that's the one thing people are definitely not divided on. Could you, for the sake of our listeners, explain the language issue in Russia and Ukraine? Yes, of course. Well, um, since Ukrainian region has been in the Russian Empire and after that in the Soviet Union, um, for the longest time, uh, the Ukrainian culture has been oppressed and uh, um, language being one of the key, I think, key parts of what makes a community distinct from other communities. Um, that was the main thing that um, the, Rus uh, the Russian government wanted to um, eradicate. And it... it it was it's a really interesting in a really interesting way they did it they made it seem as if people who spoke ukrainian were from the villages so they were uneducated and those who spoke russian they were more educated they were living in the cities um they would get higher paying role for example that that's closer to um the soviet union and the 19th century or or the 20th century where um there were hierarchies so people would get higher paying jobs if they spoke Russian. So uh, naturally, people thought that if you're speaking Russian, you're more educated. And I think that was kind of, that really made it hard for us to um, keep our language afloat. But there was, there's so many people who were fighting for the Ukrainian culture and sustaining Ukrainian language. And I think right now I I consider Ukrainian as my first language since I spoke it uh, throughout my whole life. Um, and in my family, I only speak Ukrainian. So 
if you're asking for my opinion, I think people should switch. And since the languages are not as different, it's really not that hard. So I don't really understand why it's such a problem for people who are speaking Russian to switch since you do live in Ukraine. Yeah, um, that's give me a moment there, actually, because that's a very, very interesting point that you raised there. And in politics, we have a lot of discussions about modern day imperialism and even post-colonial imperialism. And I don't think I even need to ask you that if is this form of imperialism, because I know your answer would straight away be yes. Yeah. Um, Obviously, you'd add a bit more nuance to it than yes. But of course. Um, the point that I'm making about languages is that English, in that sense, has been reiterated through colonial times to be the language that will get you a job. And it still mm-hmm. it still is that case. You know, English didn't just happen to be in every corner of the world. English didn't just happen to be the language that every, everyone spoke. It's there for a reason. And 100%. even... Even till day, even 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 today. Sorry, I um, on my CV. I'm writing my CV at the moment. On on my CV, I put Hindi and Punjabi as my mm-hmm. native language and English as fluent in writing and speaking, because to me it still is my second language and it always will be. But anyway, why don't you give us a little update about what's happened over the last month, i.e. September, uh, from the offence that Ukraine uh, launched through Kharkiv to the recent annexations of the four regions, which I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce. I personally started to become a little bit discouraged since the war has been going on for seven months. But after seeing the counteroffense and the counterattacks of the Ukrainian armed forces, that really gave me some hope. Um, I saw loads of videos of people in uh, villages around Kharkiv being rescued, people coming out from their basements where they've been hiding for so many months, um, carrying Ukrainian flags and cheering how elderly people were so happy to like wel- to welcome Ukrainian forces coming to liberate them. And that really, really touched me. Um, I think even now there's still being so much so much land is being liberated and it really puts me at ease. Um, and with that, I think with our success, uh, the Russian armed forces realized that they're being pushed back, which completely explains the, intri- the announcement of mobilization in Russia and referendums being so rushed because um, I think they, in a way, panicked. Um, and at the moment, it's been reported that around 700,000 uh, Russian citizens have fled Russia since the announcement of uh, mobilization. Mm. And um, it it just shows of this panic and so many things have been just rushed. And I think it because it came as a surprise to everyone. And I myself was so surprised about how quickly everything was done with the referendums. One morning, I just woke up and someone messaged me oh like it's it's happened because i think i didn't check the news for a day or two and uh, one day the regions were in like part of ukraine and then the other day there have been referendums and i was just surprised of how rushed it was and so that really reminded me of the situation in 2014 with crimea and it's really interesting how the whole referendum process was actually quite identical to the one in Crimea and of course regarding the international law I think this really shows how vague and easily manipulated international law can be since um, the annexations are so illegal they haven't been approved by Kiev but Russia or Putin they found a justification for it saying that they liberated us from the Nazi regime, which that is a whole different topic. Um, But that makes the situation so complex. And I feel like there is no real consequence. There there are no real consequences at the moment. Uh, Of course, many sanctions and restrictions have been introduced. But honestly speaking, I don't see that much change. Um, I don't see Russia being that punished. And that is also seen in 2014 where the consequences weren't strong enough back then, 
which is why the situation has escalated as much as it did. Do you think the West's reaction to 2014, and this is an obvious question as well, but do you think the West's reaction to 2014, and do you think the West's reaction to what's happening today is disproportionately different? And is the West's reaction to 2014... A consequence, a, a, a consequence of what's happening today. Um, I completely think that's true because um, with the even with the NATO, um, the fact that we apply to NATO now again with a fast-tracked member of NATO, I think that should have been done ages ago. I think back in 2014, that was the wake-up call for everyone, but the West was just too scared to do anything as uh, they didn't know what was going to come from Putin. But that was the time when something could have been done. I don't know if many people know about the Budapest Memorandum as well, where in 1994, um, UK, US and Russia signed an agreement, a memorandum uh, in Budapest, hence the name, uh, saying that if Ukraine gives up all their nuclear weapons that has been left since the Soviet Union, uh, UK, US and Russia uh, promised to protect our sovereign borders, which were recognised in 1991. And Russia being one of the signatories, uh, them being the ones that invaded us or annexed, them being the ones that annexed part of our land was uh, shocking but not surprising. But that was the wake-up call. That was when UK and US should have done something. They have promised us in 1994 that they would do something if that were to happen and i think in any other normal situation the west usually gets involved with this type of stuff but at that point in 2014 it was a bit more than that because they signed that memorandum in 1994 and it was kind of their duty to do that but again the UN Security Council, the Ukraine um, applied and asked for help, but Russia being one of the five members, they kept vetoing it. And I think it was 11 times that Ukraine asked for help, but Russia being a permanent member of UNSC, they can just veto it again and again. Could you, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us what UNSC is? Uh, United Nations Security Council. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you, it's a two-part question. Mm -hmm. This next question is purely based on the psyche of Putin. Um, So I'm not, this isn't, do you think NATO will accept Ukraine or not? This is a question of what impact will it have on Putin? So do you think Ukraine applying for a fast-track membership of NATO will deter Putin? Well, I was actually really surprised by that course of action. I didn't expect that because personally, I think becoming part of NATO right now would be too late. From a political perspective, I understand that if Ukraine joins NATO now, then the whole NATO alliance is part, like, kind of automatically declaring war on Russia, which ultimately will could lead to World War Three or, God forbid, nuclear war, but. I think whether it will deter Putin or not would I think would have been a question if that was done back in 2014 or even much earlier because Putin would not have had that time to organize a full-scale invasion. Right now when loads of land has already been occupied it's so much harder to create this deterrence because they've already done it and personally I think mm, Ukraine joining NATO wouldn't be as much of a threat I think uh, before NATO was so scared to do anything to get involved as Putin's actions were so unpredictable. And even at the beginning of this full-scale invasion in February, everyone was begging NATO to uh, quote-unquote close the sky, which meant that NATO would take care of the air force while Ukraine dealt with the military on the ground. But NATO declined it as they were too fearful and they didn't help us in the way that everyone expected that they would. And that's not even that's not even partially as much as applying to be part of NATO. We just asked for help. This next question th- you sort I, of already actually, answered. Actually, Sorry, I think right on. now, they, the only reason why they've done it is 
that they've realized that right now it's gone too far but to be fair it's gone too far ages ago but right now the annex with the annexations and the mobilization um the situation has crossed the line even more than ever and i think they kind of understood that they have no choice but no choice but to fast track the nato application yeah i agree it went too far in 2014 um but why do you think nato will or won't accept ukraine uh, this is purely from a Ukrainian perspective, mm -hmm. not from your perspective as an international relations student, which you can use if you like, but please go ahead. I think this is what's so hard for me with this topic, as because um, me being an international relations student and me being Ukrainian, I, it's really hard for me not to be biased or to, or to be biased. Um, since I, for me personally, as a Ukrainian, I... I think that's the one thing that uh, Ukrainian people have been begging for, um, just protection. And um, I think if we were to join NATO, I think people would kind of... To be, I, I can't even say that they would be more at ease because the war is already going on, but I think they would just feel more protected. And speaking purely as a Ukrainian person, that's definitely what most people want. And um, th this actually brings me to the the popular narrative that actually Russia has spread around that it was the US that pushed Ukraine to apply to NATO. And of course, US always med meddles in politics and everything and meddles in other countries. And it could be that US probably influenced us to join NATO to make Russia angry and um, weaken Russia. That that's the things that I've heard, but I can't say that Ukraine wouldn't have applied to NATO if it, if US wasn't in the question. I think even if US wasn't the one that influenced Ukraine to do this step, I think the people would still want it, and they would still support that decision. Since, um, and again, since since I know people, I know that we've been fighting to. Uh, be more European, be more kind of on the Western side rather than, and like pull away from that Soviet, like ex-Soviet state and, oh, Ukraine is Russia kind of rhetoric. We've been trying to move away from it. And you can see that from the Maidan revolution in 2013 slash 14, um, when um, our ex-president Yanukovych didn't sign that the um, I think it was some kind of deal. I'm not quite sure what it was, but a deal with EU. Uh, when he turned his back on it, people came to the streets. They want to be part of Europe. They want to pull away from all that Russian. Um, I don't even know what to call it. That Russian poison uh, that's been poisoning our country for centuries, and uh, I, that's why I think. Becoming part of NATO is something that Ukrainian people have wanted for a long time. But I know the international politics and the consequences that it could bring. Do you think, and this is partly related to your statements about the West and the US, um, megaphone diplomacy for the benefit of our listeners is basically when a a country or a state leader is making strong or threatening statements in order to make another country do what they want, but without actually uh, putting stuff into place. Do you think the US and the West is engaging in me megaphone diplomacy? I think that's kind of um, what I was trying to say. They, I think they are, but I don't think um, what they are saying or making or like influencing Ukraine to do I don't think they wouldn't do it with that I don't think I don't think without the US Ukraine wouldn't do it I think they would have gone through with it and maybe US does have some influence in it but I think that's what our people would have wanted as well if that makes sense and I don't think it would it was to make Russia angry. I don't think it was ever the aim of Ukraine and Ukrainian people to make Russia angry, because why would we need that? 
all we wanted is some solid protection. And I think we thought that with the Budapest Memorandum, that would have been the case, but it wasn't. But being part of NATO is something that's more solid and um, people would have wanted that. These next couple of questions are purely based on your opinion. So Mm -hmm. do you see a future peaceful relationship between Ukraine and Russia after this war, regardless of the outcome? I think this one is really hard to say. Um, And I think that really depends on how the war will end, uh, will come to an end, Uh, whether that is... um, from a milita- military perspective where we push them back or if it's from a diplomatic perspective where we have a deal um, that they never invade us or maybe there will be an overthrow of government in Russia which with with the amount of or with the lack of protests in Russia I don't know if that will happen soon um, that's just a personal opinion of mine um, I think The best solution would probably be change of government and change of uh, people's views, like Russian people's views towards us. Because I think um, right now, obviously, there's a lot of anger from our side towards the Russian people and the Russian government um, since, you know, people have gone through such a traumatic stuff. And I understand why this hate and this anger, like I understand where it's coming from. Mm, but I th- so I think that is also another um, another wall that's been built between the two nations. Uh, the war is probably one of the hardest things you can go through in life, and because you lose, not only do you lose your loved ones, you can lose your house, and it's all because of someone else. And I think war, in my opinion, is just such a useless um, useless thing in any way um it's not because of someone else it's because of an entire state yeah exactly and it's it's a very very powerful sentiment exactly so i understand where this anger is coming from um but what what's funny is i do see a lot of anger from russian people towards us because they've been fed so much propaganda and they've been fed so much um, just ridiculous things. I've had I've had situations where people were uh, just it, it was a uh, quite a while ago, and I was quite, I was young, and it was it was my peer who asked me um, a, Ru- a Russian uh, guy he 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 asked me whether we eat children in Ukraine, and I thought wow. what. At, back in the day, I thought I was like, okay, this is so funny, haha. But then, I it didn't occur to me that that was a serious matter. And if you don't know, like seventy percent of Russians never even leave their country or their city. They and their only view of the world is something that's been shown to them on their little TVs. And looking at their government, you can imagine what they've been fed. And so I mean, yes, I've 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 followed some of the stuff on Twitter, and it is. Um... Thanks to my friend who's made me aware of the stuff on Twitter. Um, and it is quite shocking stuff. Um, and I have also followed that a lot of people that were dissenting against what Putin was doing suddenly fell out of a hospital window, etc. Yeah. Um, but please finish your point. And also, um, uh, talking about Twitter and all the stuff that it, it's been... It's, there's been created so many like memes, like war memes about this, and just people like Ukrainian people, and I think the whole world even laughs at the stuff that they put in the news in Russia. I think one of the things that made me literally die in laughter is so basically, according to Russia, we have um, American labs in Ukraine that like chemical labs, and we um, mendle with DNA of pigeons. And so those pigeons are programmed to attack Russian people, specifically Russian people. So we make the pigeons in the labs, in American labs in Ukraine, and then we one day will release all the pigeons and they will attack Russian people. And I kid you not, that is what was shown on national TV 
in Russia. It's something. Here we, are, here we are talking about the US and the West lack of involvement in Ukraine, Russia, and there's Russia talking about American pigeon labs. It's um, insane. And obviously, they said that COVID was created in Ukraine as well. Um, it was it was just funny because then Ukrainian people and my friends were walking around Ukraine just filming pigeons and being like, "Yes, boys, let's go!" Like <laughs> it's ridiculous what they made make up, and people believe it. It just just comes back to the whole eating children thing. It was it's ridiculous, and I think um, obviously I've seen a lot of um, uh, stuff about Russophobia and all of that, and I think. How can you say that people are not tolerant to you if you're not tolerant towards other people? And it's 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 absolutely crazy to me. And uh, I think uh, for this whole question, I mentioned the relationship between people, but I think even relationship between the states, I think that will be very complicated since um, uh, uh, since uh, Ukraine's independence, Russia has been trying to keep that like partnership with Ukraine but Ukraine always tried to pull back and I think right now this is probably the biggest reason for Ukraine to absolutely cut all the ties with Russia and I think even by law if you um, work or collaborate with um, um, any Russian companies or Russian people I don't know if it goes as far as that but I think you can be arrested for collaboration since Right wow. now, it's really hard to tell who's on what side. Um, there's been there's been a lot of pro-Russian people planted by Russia in Ukraine um, to make this war or the occupation of the cities easier. And I think that was kind of the reason why um, the Ukrainian government was pushed to uh, approve this law. Um, the next question I'm going to ask you, it's not on the brief, so if you want me to edit it out, that's fine as well. But do you feel sorry for Russian people that have been influenced by propaganda? You know, <clears throat> sorry. You know, I think being an empath is, in this situation is quite tricky. Mm. At the beginning, I felt so sorry for the young guys that were sent to Ukraine all the way in February. They sent those um the the the, the people that were training and a lot of them, I thought, wow, all these guys that are my age or even younger are being sent, are being killed, are being captured. I feel so bad and they don't even know where they're going. What a big piece of bullshit. Of, really? They, most of them know where they're going. And obviously when you're captured, you're going to say, oh, I, you know, I was walking down the road and somehow I ended up in Zaporizhia, you know. And it's... I don't understand how can you not know and I think they've they've picked people from all like all the way in the east of um, Russia to be sent to Ukraine and those people are poor they don't have anything they have nothing to lose they're probably living better in the trenches than they live in Russia and that explains why all these uh, nice regions in Kiev were absolutely robbed. People were stealing toilets. Uh, they were stealing washing machines. Absolutely ridiculous stuff. They someone stole um, like a doghouse. Like what? Why? You're at war with the country and you're stealing doghouses. That's a completely different. Like, but I think the worst thing is the the obviously the rapes and the like kidnapping of children that is where i draw the line you will get no empathy from me whatsoever and that's just speaking about the military the people in russia um i'm gonna try and be as kind as i can be because i do have russian friends that are supportive they always check up on me they've been to some protests with me but that's unfortunately a sm very small percentage a too small of a percentage, I would even say. Um, I think a lot of people that obviously live in Moscow and maybe St. Petersburg and maybe some other relatively big cities, they understand what is happening and they can kind of weigh the, the situation. But even then, they choose to be on the wrong side, I would say. Um, 
there are those that are fed propaganda and because they're weak, you know, they're not, they can't really process the, the information. They believe it. But there are some that choose to believe it and that I don't understand. Like you would, you will get, I would not feel sorry for you. And I think it's funny that for them to start protesting, it took announcement of mobilization to start protesting. Um, and my question is, where have you been those six months? You were just sitting, chilling, and I understand you would not do anything if unless your ass is on the line. Um, so that's why people started to protest. But I thought, surely the killings in Mariupol or Bucha or Kharkiv or all those regions would be kind of, would trigger something in your mind to go and do something. But I guess that's not that big of a thing for them to protest about. And another thing, another interesting tweet on Twitter as well that I saw, it was when people starting to flee the country. Oh, since um, a lot of people said that they couldn't say anything or post anything because they were scared that they're going to be put in jail. But now that I think, uh, yeah, 700,000 people have fled to neighboring countries. Where are the protests? Where are people posting about stuff? And it just shows that that was just used as an excuse to not do anything since mm. you're you're in a country where you can you have freedom of speech no one's going to put you in jail for speaking do you not do you not yeah. think and i'm acting like the bbc here so i'm trying to do the whole neutrality thing um because i'm not trying to advocate for a specific stance even though if you heard my earlier introduction i think you know what my specific stance is yeah but do you not think having having grown up in a country where you are constantly policed, that that sense of fear would join you wherever you go. That is that is very good point. I think that's a, from a psychological stance, that's kind of, I, I can understand that. But I think it's just... Of course, we don't know how much that is reflected thing. in Russian people yeah. who've, who've left. But it's, it's just yeah. a consideration. Yeah, um, of course. I, in the interest of time, I really want to move on to the last two questions. And I have a third one, which we discussed earlier this morning, uh, which I'm, I've sort of hinted at. So, Kat, you'll know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But the next two questions are a bit more serious. Do you ever think there will be a time where the likes of Ukraine, Latvia... Belarus will not be considered ex-Soviet states. Well, I think it as is an identity. I mean, not yeah, obviously yeah. they have in terms of historically they always at one point were ex-Soviet states, but mm -hmm. well, I think it is happening right now. As um, I mean, I don't know. It depends what you consider ex-Soviet state. I think an ex-Soviet state is something um, in a way that is always going to be there but as an identity maybe as something that people um, people might not view it always as an ex-soviet state and i think with that um the world is becoming more globalized and less eurocentric so people are learning about other countries they're learning mm. about other cultures so they don't see ukraine latvia and Belarus, for example, before they would think, oh, is that part of Russia? Or, oh, it was part of Soviet Union. But now that people are actually learning about all these countries separately, they have like a set, like they've set a separate um, kind of view of each country, I guess. So I think mm. that is probably something that would help us kind of de de detach from that ex-Soviet um, identity. Um, obviously, also, we need to progress economically, so maybe that would be great for us. We wouldn't yeah. be called, oh, Eastern Europe, you know, everything is, you know, that Eastern European aesthetic where everything is uh, just gloomy and dark. Um, but mm. I think... And Eastern Europeans are grouped together in the same way that South Asians are very yeah. suddenly grouped together as, as if they are one and historically they might have been one but there are some key differences that people tend to gloss over um in the fear of doing more reading um that you have is one more that's point exactly that what it say. is i think people um are, i don't want to say lazy but they're not as motivated to read more about each culture and i understand that 
I can't expect everyone to know history of Ukraine, for example. You know, I I know it because I'm I'm from Ukraine. I'm interested, but I can't expect everyone to know it. And so, in our human minds, we tend to just put stuff in blocks, you know. And I think that kind of reminds me of how Europe of how Americans talk about Europe as a you know as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. Even though for us it's so weird, like surely, like France and Italy are diff- completely different co- countries with com- completely different cultures. But for them, it's just Europe, and for those who've never been there, it's just a big blob, you know. We do and, it now in the UK as well. We yeah. do it now in the UK. Oh, you know those Europeans um, yeah. <laughs> with all their legislation that we must follow. Um, I want to move you on to the last two questions. Uh, the first one being serious. Do you think the expansion of Russia and pre-1991, the USSR, is a form of imperialism? I I am completely sure that it is, because I don't know how else to call it. Um, if, if it were a union between the countries, for example, like European Union, um, one country would not have been, influ- wouldn't have influenced um, or oppressed other countries, like, for example, USSR did, or how Russia is doing right now in the occupied regions of Ukraine. Um, my parents grew up in USSR, so I know a lot of first-hand stories or how it was back then. And it was, it's crazy how every country had to be like Russia. Like, uh, back then, obviously, it wasn't like Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. Yeah, it was Russification. And Everyone had to go by the rules of Moscow. Um, mm. The Russian language was forced upon. I've mentioned that before. Um, the cultures were very oppressed. Um, if you, if you kind of, if you were different, you would be oh, like okay, you're not part of us. I think people forget how diverse Russia in itself is. Most of it is in Asia, and most of the people are. Um, are not as as I say white, you know, because uh, mm. it's in Asia. But people don't realize how diverse it is, because Russia has put this image of being the Slavic state, and that is just another thing that we have to remember. People are so different, even within Russia, but Russia just completely, you know, covered it up in a way, and. It's ridiculous to me how how well they've done it. And that, for me, is a form of imperialism, is when you kind of make everyone look like one. And I again, the, the, lang- the language is the biggest thing for me because that's kind of... And it works even, even now. I think um, when I say I'm from Ukraine, people automatically assume I speak Russian. I've actually had a situation where someone asked me, um, they asked me in English where I'm from and I said Ukraine and they said oh so you speak Russian and I said sorry I never learnt it and that just made me feel very good because <laughs> why are you why are you assuming yeah. well done well done um yeah you're right people don't know how massive Russia is and how diverse it is I think people forget that it spans 11 time zones yes I mean that's ridiculous um but the last question I don't know if you already guessed it Kat it's um, about the richest man in the world. He gave us a mm-hmm. little bit of his contribution this morning. Please treat this question as laughably as you like. But what do you think yes. about Elon Musk's plan uh, for uh, for Russia and Ukraine? Well, uh, I was very surprised. And I think the first thing I thought was, who asked? Who asked me? I'm sorry. <laughs> I agree. Um, <laughs> I agree. Um, First of all, it's just very absurd and um, just out of pocket. I think, how can you just say, oh, you know, Crimea belonged to Russia like three centuries ago, so let's just say it's Russian. People need to remember that when Ukraine becomes independent in 1991, there were sovereign borders that were recognised and people can't just say, oh, back in the day, you know, this land was ours, so let's just come and reclaim it. That's just not how it works. And you can't just go into back into history, oh, it was Khrushchev's mistake. Khrushchev was the um, um, 
uh, one of the USSR leaders who uh, passed Crimea from Russia to Ukraine in 1954, and he said it was Khrushchev's mistake to give Crimea to Ukraine. Um, I and I'm sure that he doesn't know the his the history of Ukraine, Crimea, or the USSR at that time. Why this switch from Russia to Crimea, from Russia to Ukraine, why that switch happened. And it was just so, it was just so out of hand, I think. And making the referendums again uh, by, um, and mm, what what was it they, that the UN was supposed to look look after the referendum? They were supposed referendum? to monitor. They were supposed monitor, to monitor yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, why According are the referendums needed? The referendums shouldn't happen in the first place. That land is Ukrainian. And if people that live there want to be part of Russia, they can move to Russia. It's not that far. It's just across the border. And that I don't understand. So I think with with the whole um, people claim, people in the, the eastern region saying that they want to be part of Russia, you can't just say oh i want to i want this land to be part of russia so let's do a referendum that's that's just if i were if i'm living in london and i say you know what i love london and i'm gonna say let's do a referendum and make it part of ukraine that because i because i want to live here and i you know i speak ukrainian i want to be part of i want it to be part of ukraine it that's just how i see it people uh but anyway, it's just my opinion, I guess. <laughs> no, thank you so much for your sincere description and analysis of, of everything that's happened over the last couple of months. Um, we're going to end the episode right here. Thank, thank you for you. listening. If you've lasted this whole way, I know it's been a tough listen uh, when it comes to discussing uh, matters of war. Um, but I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you to Kat. Thank uh, you. Next week, James was, will not be with us. We will have some more guests, and I and I hope that you will enjoy that as well. So from now on, we're going to be uh, we're going to be recording on Wednesdays, and we're going to be posting on Fridays. This is just so that it fits in better with our university schedules. Uh, we are third year students at the end of the uh, day. So yes, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on Spotify, Amazon Music, or even Apple Music. Go follow our TikTok at Politics on Draft and go follow our Twitter at P underscore on underscore draft. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.